in a very important area, and that's peacemaking or conciliation. My wife is, a, is an artist. She's a phenomenally fine oil painter. She uh, has taught oil painting for a number of years in our home on Monday mornings and Tuesday evenings. She has eight to ten students. Uh, she uh, uses a palette knife and does portraits. In fact, uh, uh, Pat MacArthur had one done of John that hangs in their, in their home. And uh, there's a story about a portrait of a lawyer hanging in the foyer of this large Philadelphia law firm. And it was a full-blown portrait showing the lawyer with his three-piece suit, button-down collar, wingtip shoes, the look of arrogance and power and success, hand in his pocket, staring out into the reception area. There's a client sitting there looking at that painting for a long time, and finally the client says to the receptionist, you know, that's a very accurate likeness of that man, except it would be more accurate if it was painted with his hand in another man's pocket. <laughs> now, the reason I use that illustration is because I want to ask you a question. If the artist who knows us better than we know ourselves were to paint your portrait, where would he paint your hand? Where would he paint your hand? Would he paint your hand stuck deep in your own pocket saying, in effect, what's mine is mine? A very self-centered attitude. Or worse, would he paint your hand in another man's pocket, taking what doesn't belong to you? Or would he paint your hand open and extended saying what's mine is yours? I think that's the only portrait I would hope that the Lord would paint if he were to paint my portrait. That is the model, the open hand. That's risky. The open hand is very risky. But I think that is the key to peacemaking and conciliation is an open-handed approach to life. Recently, the Wall Street Journal had an ad that was paid for by the insurance industry, and it pointed out that last year there were 16.6 million lawsuits filed in the United States. Since there are at least two people involved in every lawsuit, that means in 1985 we had 33.2 million Americans that got into the courts in one year. If you want to know what's happening in litigation, just ask Bob Provost about insurance premiums for this college. It's gone from 16000 to 35000 this year. King's College in Upper State New York went from 2000 in 1984 to 7000 last year to 75000 this year, and they've never had a claim. Litigation is exploding. It's an epidemic, and it's not just because of non-Christians. We did a little survey a few years ago down in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a little city of 350,000 people. We discovered in one year there were 32,000 lawsuits filed in that town. And doing a little random sampling, we found out that 8,000 or one-fourth of the lawsuits filed in Albuquerque, New Mexico, were among regularly attending churchgoers. They would call themselves Christians. And yet... Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, how dare you sue one another? Isn't there a better way? That was the question that Chief Justice Warren Burger asked a few years ago when he addressed the American Bar Association in Chicago, pointing out that in the last 40 years in the United States, litigation or lawsuits has grown 40 times faster than our population. It's indeed a sad situation. And we as Christians are the only people that can show a better way because we have one that Christ laid out for us in Matthew 18. I'd like to have you turn, if you've got your Bible with you, to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, the passage that we want to look at is starting in verse 15, but I want to just put that in context. 
Because at the beginning of that chapter, in verse 1, the disciples came to Christ and asked him, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and stood him in their midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The issue in Matthew 18, the issue in dispute, resolution, and reconciliation is always that of humility. The battle is between pride on the one hand and humility on the other. And Christ went on to point out that in verse 7, Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. It's a very serious matter when we allow our pride to control our conduct and we become stumbling blocks to the world. See, the world knows how Christians are supposed to act. And we're always, always being watched. And when we act inconsistently with what the standard is that the world knows, because we tell them what Christians are all about, then we become stumbling blocks. And Christ warns us about being stumbling blocks. And then in verse 12, he says, What do you think? If any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountain and go and search for the one? that is straying and if it turns out that he finds it truly I say to you he rejoices over it more than over the ninety and nine which have not gone astray again here is the, the picture of a sheep straying from the flock now we're all sheep we all stray every one of us tends to stray and yet we have an obligation. It's a responsibility. It is not merely an option. When we see a straying brother or sister, it is not just an option to go and locate that person and bring him or her back into the flock. It is a responsibility. When you see someone that is violating this standard, violating God's word, it's not an option for you to go lovingly and say and try to bring that person back in the flock. It's a Christian responsibility. There's a book called Caring Enough to Confront that says it all. Do you care enough to confront? Do you love enough to confront and bring and seek to bring that person back in the flock? And then Christ says, after talking about straying sheep, he says in verse 15, And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Here we have a three-step process that Christ has laid out in terms of erring brothers and sisters. Step one is you go in private. Church discipline always starts in the smallest circles, one-on-one. -on -one. And then if that doesn't work, if you don't, it's not a matter of winning your point or winning your case, but if reconciliation hasn't resulted, then you bring one or two witnesses along, and if that doesn't work, then you go to the broader circle of the church. Now, we follow a three-step process consistently in the church. I see it happening all the time. I, I'm guilty of it myself. You know what the three-step process is? First, we tell it to the church. Now, we're very smooth about this. The longer you've been in the church, the smoother you can get. The, the smoothest way to tell it to the church is in a prayer meeting, especially a small group. And you'll hear somebody say, you know, I, I really need, we really need to pray for Jim. You know, Jim, uh, let me tell you, just fill you in, just, just briefly fill you in on what Jim did the other day to me. And uh, then you launch into this long 20-minute prayer request of what Jim has done. And then you say, you know, we need to pray for Jim. And I, pray for me so I have wisdom as to how I deal with Jim and his sins against me and so on. And would, one, would two or three of you come with me or maybe one or two come with me so we can confront and talk to Jim about this? So then we've moved into step two, see? And then when we've got the support of a couple of people, then we say... Tell you what, I'll give Jim a call and I'll set up the meeting. See, there's step one. Reversed. And what have we done in sharing that prayer request about Jim? We have, we have,
damaged his reputation. And that's serious matter. I recall when I was at Grace Church, in the old days, we used to have the tape ministry up on the second floor where Monty Brewer now has the missions offices, if they're still up there, in the fireside room. And uh, one day, one of the people working in the tape ministry was looking out the window and he noticed a guy pick up a cassette tape out of the dumpster out in the driveway behind the church and put it in his pocket. Fifteen minutes later, this fellow comes up to the tape ministry and pulls this cassette tape and gives it to the fellow and says, uh, this doesn't work right. I'd like a new one. And the fellow with the tape ministry says, you sure you want to do this? And the guy says, yeah, you know, word of grace, you guarantee the product. This doesn't work. I bought it, paid good money for it. I wanted a new tape. And the fellow says, you sure you want to do this? He says, yeah. You know, you stand behind your merchandise, don't you? I mean, word of grace, good for your word, right? Okay, so he went, got a tape, exchanged it, didn't say anything. That bothered this fellow till Sunday morning when he saw the fellow with the tape and goes up to me and says, you know, I can't believe what you did last Tuesday. I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh, that story about the tape. I saw where you got the tape in the dumpster. And you came up and told that story about buying it. And he said, well, did you see how the tape got into the dumpster? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I was a volunteer last Tuesday working at the church, and one of my assignments was to empty the trash. And, and I had a box that I took to the dumpster, and it was full of trash, and I had my, the tape in my pocket. And as I shoved the box into the dumpster, the tape was knocked out and went to the dumpster. And when you looked out the window, I was retrieving my tape. See, one of the reasons why it's important that we go one-on-one -on -one in private is that we don't always have all the facts. If Paul had shared that incident in a Bible study, that person's reputation would have been damaged and probably irreparably damaged because you can never catch a rumor and put it out totally. So it's important that we go one-on-one -on -one in private. But if it doesn't work, then Christ says, bring one or two witnesses with you reason for that is again is that when it comes to our rights especially when the issue is money we have a terrible blind spot my son Ryan on occasion would uh, whenever uh, he got in a little spat with Monica um, if he if Monica hit him or somehow hurt him and he would cry he would go to my wife Bobby and say she did it on purpose Monica did it on purpose she hit me on purpose mom she hit me on purpose but when Monica would come crying because Ryan had somehow hit her he would always come in and defend himself saying mom it was on accident it was on accident I don't do things on purpose like that it was an accident well we have our blind spots we're very defensive and therefore the Lord says, if you see an issue, one of the reasons for bringing witnesses is to confirm the facts. It's very helpful to bring in a disinterested third party to help. Our church that I attend, Emmanuel Bible Church, this Easter will finally, after almost five years of construction, move into our new worship center. And uh, at one point, we had a general contractor helping us with the building we had negotiated what's called a fixed price contract we had decided that this and the contractor had agreed for 2.1 million he would deliver a building for us and we gave it a little extra premium so that there wouldn't be any change in the price well after a while into the construction now there was a hundred and eighty thousand dollar overrun on the construction project. Now, that's only about 10%. That's not. That's pretty good for Washington, D.C., where normally everything costs at least twice what it's projected to cost. The church felt they had a fixed-price contract. They shouldn't pay any more. The contractor maintained that they had to make some changes, that the county required some changes and some unforeseen things, and therefore the church should pay additionally for the changes. One Sunday morning, the pastor announced that uh, we should have special prayer 
about a meeting coming up with a contractor that next Wednesday because if it didn't work out right, we may have to go to court with a contractor. Now that troubled me because I was under the impression that the contractor was a believer. So I went up to the chairman of the board of trustees and I asked him, are, are you serious about this lawsuit business? He says, oh yeah. He says, they'll probably sue us because we're not going to pay them. And I said, well, I thought the contractor was a Christian. Oh, well, you know, talk is cheap. That's what they claim. And I said, uh, when is this meeting on Wednesday? He says, 9 o'clock. I said, do you mind if I come? I promise I'll just sit quietly and not say a word. So he says, on those conditions, you can come. So Wednesday morning, I showed up at 9 o'clock and... They were seated there, and I listened to them for about 45 minutes without saying a word, and that shows that the age of miracles is not past. And, <laughs> and listening, I realized that both parties had acted in good faith. The church had a good position. They had bargained for a fixed-price contract, paid good money for it, but the contractor also had a good position because they felt, again, they were not trying to take advantage of each other. They had a problem, a $180,000 problem. Well, after 45 minutes, I gradually, tactfully, diplomatically, diplomacy is, is when you say something twice and say nothing. And, that's, and so I diplomatically got into the conversation and I asked the question about uh, this uh, dispute here and uh, what about 1 Corinthians 6? How dare you sue one another? And we pointed out, you know, that the hallmark of the Christian faith is that we have love one for another. You know, Christ said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, that you have lawsuits with one another. That's not the way it's written. It says that you will have love one for another. So I said, how can you even consider a, a lawsuit? Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? You're wronged by wrongdoers who inadvertently cause you harm. You're defrauded by evildoers who intentionally cause you harm. So it covers the entire spectrum of wrongdoers and evildoers. So we talked about that, and after about 45 minutes, they settled the case where the church agreed, okay, they would pay 70000 and the contractor said, okay, we'll absorb 110000 Now, my law professors would have been elated at the result Everybody had decided on a solution, but nobody was happy. See, we had resolved the issue, but in, 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 in Matthew 18, that's not enough. The real issue is relationships and reconciliation in the body. It's not enough just to decide who gets the marbles. The real issue is the relationships. The contractor said to us, you know, I flew here with my partner from Michigan, just so I could sit down with you and talk to you over the table instead of using lawyers, because you know how lawyers are. I tell my lawyer this, he writes a letter to your lawyer who tells you what I told my lawyer. They then write the letters back and the meter's running all the time. And I just thought it was a lot better just for me to come and, and for us to come and sit down face to face. And I asked him, how much did it cost you to come? He says, $305 each. So I said, $610? That's right, $610. I pulled out my checkbook, noticed I had $222 in it, but I did have ready reserve. <laughs> and I pulled out and I wrote a check to ABC Contracting, $610, and I gave it to the contractor. And he says, what's this for? And I said, well, the Bible does say when one member of the body suffers, who suffers? We all suffer, right? Now, you just suffered $110,000. The church suffered $70,000. You're acting in good faith. They're acting in good faith. I'm willing to suffer a little bit. And because you acted in good faith, here's $610. Now, the dynamic started. He says to me, Sam, we build churches all across the country. I'm going to send you our standard contract, and we want to put in that contract a clause which requires mandatory conciliation in any dispute that we ever have with any church or Christian in any project. 
Whereupon the fellow from the church who had assured me on Sunday that these people were no goods says to me, you mean you wouldn't ever sue a Christian? And he says, that's right. How, how dare you sue one another? Sam's right. The witness is more important than the money. Whereupon the fellow from the church says, you know, your stock just went up 100 points in my book. The contractor takes my check, turns it over, endorses it payable to Emmanuel Baptist Church and signs his name and gives it to the church. He is now out $110,610. You know what happened at that moment when that check passed hands or passed over? Reconciliation. We not only had resolved a dispute, but we had reconciled parties. How many times do you hear of a dispute between two friends or former friends or two Christians involving money? And how many times have you been willing to step forward and use your own resources to heal a relationship? You know, all of us want to be healers. We all would love, I would love to be able to go up to a blind man and say, here's your sight. I'd love to walk up to a lame man and say, get up, take your bed and walk. I would love to do that. But the Lord says, unless you're faithful in using unrighteous mammon, I will never entrust true spiritual power to you, true riches. And so if you're not willing to use unrighteous mammon to heal relationships, I can guarantee you that the Lord's not going to entrust true power to you. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Simple as that. Now, the contractor asked me also, he says, why did you do it? I mentioned the suffering part, and then I also said, you know, we had a holy God and sinful man. And who was the mediator? Christ. What did he do? Did he just bring the parties together, sit down over the table, work out the terms of the contract, go back to the office, type it up, bring it back, sign it, charge his fee, and leave? No. What did Christ do as a mediator? He paid the price. Down in Albuquerque, there was a dispute involving $20,000 between two Christians and a mediator, and and they were squabbling over this $20,000, and the mediator pulls out his checkbook and writes $20,000 check to the injured party, and he says, now you two hug. You know what? That started a lot of hugging and a lot of relationships. The check was returned, but the relationships were restored. It's that kind of dynamic that says to the world that we're different. In John Stott's book on the Sermon on the Mount, the Christian counterculture, he says the key verse in the Sermon on the Mount is this. Do not be like them. That's the key. And yet, when it comes to dispute resolution in the body of Christ, we're just the same as non-believers. And yet, we're not to be like them. But what if it doesn't work at that stage? What if reconciliation doesn't work? What do we do? By the way, I should mention this as a footnote. I left that meeting, drove home to get ready to go to the office, And see, we had been praying for a new office space. For nine months, the Christian College Coalition with John Dellenbeck, who was your stately lecturer here two years ago, uh, he and I, he graciously gave me office space and I graciously lent him our receptionist secretary and we met one another's needs for nine months. And then he booted me out and while he was because he needed the space and I was looking for office space and I was convinced that the Lord could not be effective in Washington, D.C. without a Washington, D.C., post office address. I mean, you really, he really needs Washington, D.C., zip code 20012, because the Northern Virginia address just wouldn't cut it. Everybody knows, you know, you need to identify with Washington, D.C. So I've been looking for months for downtown Washington, D.C. I went to the Catholic Church. They, owns, they own all sorts of buildings in Washington, D.C. And I said, this conciliation service is, is a great thing, and we, we need a building. And they said, no, sorry, we're not available. My wife now, she'd been praying for an office, too close to home. She didn't understand. But on the way back from this meeting with the contractor in my church, I noticed that the closest office building to my home, National Right to Work Building, had a office space available sign, telephone number 533-1776. 
very easy to remember. I remember it to this day. So I went home and dialed 533-1776, got a hold of the leasing agent who asked me to meet him at another building to talk about office space. I met him, and uh, he took my business card. While I was there, I, I noticed the name of the building was Suburban Savings. Now, I asked a really dumb question. Just right up front, I said to this fellow, who is Mr. Suburban Savings and Loan? Now, that's a dumb question. That's dumb. Do you go into a home savings and loan and say, who is Mr. Home Savings and Loan? Or into Security First or wherever, uh, who is Mr. You, know, you don't do that. But here I asked this leasing agent who didn't know me from Adam, who is Mr. Suburban Savings and Loan? He says to me, my father and I. I was talking to the son of the owner of seven high-rise buildings in Northern Virginia area. Then he says to me, Christian Legal Society, do you know Swede Anderson? And I said, sure. Swede Anderson heads up the Campus Crusade Christian Embassy in Washington, D.C., and I've known him, and he's a good Swede, true to his name. And he says, well, Swede has been my Bible study teacher for three years. So here we had a Christian. To make a long story short, this fellow wanted CLS as a tenant so badly that they, he gave us a deal that saved us $25,000 the next year. Not a bad return on a $600 investment. In fact, when I got home that evening, for the only time in the five years I've been, quote, on a mission field, somebody sent me $800 in gifts to my home made out personally to me, which covered, more than covered the check. In fact, had enough to take out my wife for dinner and then some. And then I got a call from the church chairman of the trustees who had been there that morning and he said, listen, I know you people are on a tight budget and all the rest. I'll bring the check back so you can just tear it up. We don't need it. And I said, you know what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? It's yours. Keep it. I don't need it. <laughs> now, I, I, I share that with footnote with a caution because there is a real error in theology and doctrine being taught these days, and that is if, you, if you're generous and you give, then you can go out and buy yourself a Cadillac. Now, the Lord will entrust you with more assets for one purpose, and that's to meet other people's needs, not to improve your lifestyle. Watch out when the Lord returns generously, if you give generously. Don't waste it on yourself. Just be ready to use it for other people. But what if it doesn't work? Step two, there still isn't, doesn't work. Well, then it's time to, in effect, tell it to the church. And the way we do it at Christian Legal Society is this. I'll tell the story. About five, six years ago now, John came into my office. This is when I was administrative pastor at the church. And he came in and he said, we have a young lady in our church who had a baby out of wedlock. She placed it up for adoption, and um, she refuses to sign the release papers. Can you represent her? And I said, well, who are the adopted parents? And I knew the adopted parents. They were in Northern California. And I said, well, I'm not a family law specialist, but I'll get her a Christian lawyer. And I put her in touch with a Christian lawyer. They had a Christian lawyer up in Northern California. And then I went back and I read 1 Corinthians 6. And there Paul writes, how dare you sue one another? Now, I remember when I first stumbled across that verse. Now, when you're a lawyer going around suing people, that's a troubling verse. And I thought, maybe Paul was sort of mistaken. Maybe there's a bad translation here. So I checked the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I checked the Greek out. And what Paul really meant was, how dare you sue one another? <laughs> and so I called up the parties and our lawyers, and I said, isn't there a better way? Why are we dragging this one to the courts? Why don't we tell it to the church? And... They said, well, has it ever been done before in this kind of case? And I said, it doesn't say, how dare you sue one another, unless it's never been done before. Or, well, this is an important, this is a biggie. This is a complex one. That's, that's an excuse I often hear. This involves a lot of money. You know, as if, how dare you sue one another, unless it's over $25,000, then it's okay. I mean, you know, there is no such exception in there. And so I said, Not, and, and I said why don't you pray about it? Now, let me ask you this. Both parents 
besides both sets of parents, the young woman, 23 at that point, and the adopted parents, both of them believed it was God's will for them to have this child. See, the, the, the birth mother had been told that she had a year to make up her mind and to change her mind. In California, six months is the limit. Once you've released your baby, six months is it. The adoptive parents, of course, they were told by the lawyer this is the seventh month. She's lost it. Of course, she was mistaken. She was misguided. She really hadn't consented to release the child because she was given wrong information. So there was a good, each side, if I was the judge, as a matter of law, it would have been a 50-50 proposition. I wouldn't know which way to go. It was a toughie. Now, let me ask you this. If it's your baby or your child, how willing would you be to submit the issue of who's going to rear that child to a process that has never been tried to total strangers that you've never met before? Would you be willing to do that with your child? I wonder if I'd be willing to do it with Monica and Ryan, especially if I thought I had a good case. But both sides were willing to do it. So I contacted three lawyers, all elders, First Timothy 3, Titus 1 type of men, and I asked them if they would be willing to sit on a panel. They were. And everything was going just wonderful until the night before the hearing. And then it dawned on me, see, I'm a Swede, and you know what they say about Swedes, the best five years of a Swede's life, second grade. And I, and I knew, I knew that there would be one winner and one loser. And it was foreseeable that the loser would point the finger at me saying, I trusted you, you guaranteed the process, you said that it would be fair, that we would have wise men, that they would be fair and impartial and godly men, where'd you get those jokers and I lost my baby? Because of you, Sam, I trusted you and I lost my baby. Now that's not a good position to be in. So I mentioned that to Bobby at the dinner table and she said, well, you know, 1 Corinthians 6, it does say, isn't there a wise man amongst you? The assumption is that the parties know the judge. That, that the judge has credibility, that he's wise. So why don't you let them reserve their decision about being bound until after they've told their story but before the decision? If they don't feel that these judges or the panel is doing a fair job and being impartial, then they can beg out and say, I don't like the process. These fellows aren't my idea of ideal and impartial judges. That's wonderful, Bobby. That gets me off the hook. Terrific. So I presented that option the next morning, and they said, we trust you, Sam. We'll go forward. We don't need to change anything. So back on the hook. Then I went into the library where we set up this little process, and I looked around. And I knew we had trouble because we had six lawyers. There were, I was a lawyer. Each side had a lawyer. There were three lawyers on the panel. Six lawyers. And you know what we learn in law school? We learn how to fight. We don't learn how to be peacemakers. No, we learn how to fight. And here we had six people trained in fighting, being the gladiator in the arena, fighting for your client's rights. In fact, the American Bar Association canon of ethics that governs our conduct requires every lawyer to represent his client zealously. That's the word. Not just do a good job, but be zealous. Put up a good fight. That's the motto. And I looked around and I thought, my goodness, we've got six fighters here. What are we going to do? We better ask ourselves three questions. First question, why are we here? And I read the entire section in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, saying we're here because this is the way the Bible says Christians are to resolve issues, which is to tell it to the church. And then how should we conduct ourselves? Read Philippians 2, 1 through 8. You know that passage about consider the other person's interest more important than your own? That's nice talk and those are nice words. But here we have an eight-month-old baby at this point 
and we're supposed to consider the other person's interest more important than our own? And I said, you know, and then the third question was, what should our attitude be? And I read the entire chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter. And I said, you know, if we do it all by the book and we do everything procedurally correct, but we don't have love one for another, we have failed. Let's pray. Then we had a two and a half hour session that was absolutely mind boggling and life changing. I've seen it happen time and again since, but I've never seen it before. What was going on was not the animosity and the adversity and all this kind of stuff that is typical in litigation, and especially in child custody battles. There is nothing more bitter in the courts than child custody battles. That is the most bitter. Parents don't care if the other person, the parents don't care often if they get the baby or the child, just to make sure that the other parent doesn't get them. They'll pull out all the stops. And so here we had potential. Now, what was going on? We had the adoptive parents pointing out not only the reason why, why they felt that it was God's will for them to have this baby and all their positive points, but pointing out the strengths of the birth mother. And the birth mother in turn saying, well, here's why I feel that it's God's will for me to have the baby. But I realize that so-and-so, the parents would be wonderful parents for my baby. And if it wasn't for the fact that I feel so totally convinced that it's God's will for me to have a baby, they would make a perfect home for my baby. And at the end of the hearing, without any prompting, the two mothers got up and did something that I've never seen happen in a courtroom. They embraced. We had reached reconciliation. That's 8 o'clock, and I guess it's time to close up. Well, they're not. Uh, the results. <laughs> the results. Let me tell you. Three weeks later, we got a two-page written opinion. And as soon as I read it, I knew we had three very wise men. They started off by affirming both the parties, saying that these parents would make a wonderful home for a child. None of this, they've got some weak points and they've got some better points. Very affirming. And then they said after much prayer and thought and studying God's word, we've come to the conclusion that it's God's will for this baby to remain with the adoptive parents. The birth mother got the news on her 24th birthday. That was not the news she was expecting. In one sense, although both parties came out of the hearing and told me, I have the weaker case. Both sides felt they had the weaker case. But they were both hoping that they would be the winners. And when the birth mother got the news, she said, you know... I still think God wants me to have my baby. But it does say, why not rather be wronged? See, when you tell it to the church, there is no guarantee that the church will make the right decision because Christians, like the bumper sticker says, Christians are forgiven, not perfect. And so when you tell it to the church and you submit a dispute to the church, they may make a mistake and render the wrong decision. But the thing that is protected and preserved when you tell it to the church is the witness of the body, and that's far more important whether it's been winning or losing. And so she says, I'll accept the decision, and here's a check for $100 as a gift from me to Christian Legal Society for providing the process. And that was the first contribution to the Christian Conciliation Service, which 1985 saw 2,000 cases told to the church and another 8,000 resolved at step one of Matthew 18. The savings to the church last year, minimum $25 million. The cost for our budget total nationally, $700,000. But try to raise funds for peacemaking from churches and evangelicals. It's tougher than pulling teeth. Grace Community Church has been the most generous supporter of Christian Eagle Society of any church in the United States. And I commend them and thank them for that. But it's tough.
What happens if the decision is not accepted? Christ goes on to say, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. If you think that has something to do with prayer meetings, let me tell you, it has nothing to do with prayer meetings. No, God, Christ is present if one person is praying. It doesn't take two or three. What this has to do with is the jurisdiction and the authority of the church to settle its own disputes. And in fact, Christ says here that the church is the only place for Christians to resolve their disputes. And once the church makes a decision, it is not only bound down here, it is bound up there. The Shai family was the wealthiest family in the Pagosa Springs Baptist Church in, in uh, Colorado. For years they had thrown their weight around because they were the biggest donors, they were millionaires. And they cause all sorts of havoc. A new pastor comes in and the pastor decides, I've had enough of this. We're going to go through Matthew 18, step one, step two, step three. You're out. Husband, wife, two daughters, because they were all refusing to be reconciled and to stop the divisiveness in the church. Mr. Shive decided not to accept the decision of the church and filed a lawsuit against this little church of 150 people for $17 million dollars. It was served on a church a year ago, October. Soon after filing the lawsuit, Mr. Shive, who had been a pilot for many years, experienced three near crashes, mechanical failures flying. He told his friends he had never had any problems in 30 years of flying, but for some reason, all of a sudden, they were having some mechanical problems. On his way to Christmas dinner in New Mexico, flying from Colorado with his wife and two daughters, on Wednesday before Thanksgiving, 1984, the Shive family died in, as their plane crashed. See, there are times when the Lord decides to execute judgment and to intervene and to stand behind Matthew 18. When the church speaks in discipline, it is not a light matter. It is serious stuff. Very serious stuff. But there is a backdrop to all of this that we must not forget. And that starts in verse 21. When Peter said to Christ... Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. See, Peter thought he was doing pretty well because the rabbis and the teachers of the law in his day said, if you forgive somebody three times, that's enough. Then you're home free. Then you can do anything you want with those folks. Three times is, is really righteous living. And Peter figured two times three plus one is seven. Sounds pretty good. Seven times enough, Christ. And Christ says, no, not seven. Seven times seventy. For this reason, the Lord says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, you know the story. How this one servant, one slave who owed billions of dollars was forgiven by the master. But along comes another slave who owed this first slave a few bucks. And the first slave refuses to forgive him. Forgiveness. In Washington, I met a man in jail in federal prison some time back. He was serving seven years for a conviction stemming out of some business practices in his office. 
the prime witness against him was another Christian in the office. The other Christian also served six months. He felt that he had been, he was serving time for something that Mr. A had done to Mr. B. Mr. B felt that he had been wrong. Both parties felt they were wrong. Mr. A, we'll call him, or Mr. Smith, we, has two children, 9 and 11. Seven years means that he won't see his children until they're 16 and 18. I have a son, 9, and a daughter, 12. And I'll tell you, these next seven years are key years. You'll never recover, will never recover. And I can identify with him sitting away from his family during those key years because, in his opinion, a Christian didn't tell it straight. There was, in addition to this problem in the business, there was a $40,000 loan between the two families that had not been resolved for many years, and the wife of the two kids needed the money. One day, Dick Halverson called up and asked if perhaps there would be some way to try to use conciliation in this issue, and I said, I'll give it a a shot and we worked for almost six months. It was very tough because this whole thing had gone, the relationship and all, had gone back a long time. There was a lot of bitterness, a lot of anger on both sides for what had happened. Reputations had been destroyed. Their witness had been destroyed. Finally, after about six months, the parties decided to settle the monetary dispute. I prepared two sets of settlement papers, one that was standard, lawyerly, nice stuff, all the legal mumbo-jumbo. The second one had all the legal mumbo-jumbo except it had an additional clause. The additional clause said in so many words that we're all Christians We've been forgiven by God and through his Son. And that the hallmark of the Christian is that we have loved one for another. And because Christ and Father has forgiven us everything, therefore we can forgive much. Therefore all is forgiven. Put that clause in there. A couple of days before... We were to go to prison to have these documents signed. I got a letter from the wife of the fellow sitting in jail. The, the, the other fellow was already out back in business. And the wife had written a letter to some friends that she circulated broadly, again launching all the accusations and the feelings she had against this other couple. And I thought the settlement had just gone down the drain. Now she has broadcast, she's told it all to the church again, the wounds are all open again. And I was afraid that the thing had just folded, but I decided to proceed. And as I was walking out the door on my way to the prison with my documents, up walks the mailman with a little letter. And I open it up, and it was a note from the other party saying, I got the letter, I read it, I forgive her, proceed. So I went to the prison, sat down with this fellow who had another five years to go. And I said to him, I want you to sign this document with this forgiveness provision in it, but read them both. He read them and he says to me, Sam, he says, two weeks ago I could never have forgiven that man for what he's done to me, but now I'm ready. You tell him when I get out of this prison that I want to restore a relationship with him that was as good and better than when all of this started. Tell him from me that I forgive him and love him. And then he signed and he initialed, therefore all is forgiven. I took it down to his wife who was downstairs, three floors below showed it to her and she says, if he can do it, I can do it. 
we had reconciliation and forgiveness. And I'll tell you, if they can do it, I can do it, you can do it. If Christ can forgive you for what you've done, there is no person that you will ever meet that you cannot forgive. The last Friday of July, last year, at noon, I got a call from Chuck Colson. He uh, told me about a dispute that I I was aware of. I'd read about it in the magazines, Christianity Today. It involved Bill Bright and Tony Campolo. Bill Bright, you all know, head of Campus Crusade for Christ, and Tony Campolo, perhaps the most dynamic, most sought-after campus speaker in the United States, an evangelical a liberal evangelical in the sense of his politics and economics from Eastern College in Pennsylvania. Last summer, in July and early August, Youth for Christ and Campus Crusade co-sponsored the Youth Congress in Washington, D.C., where 16,000 high school kids came to get equipped in order to make a difference on their high school campuses. Tony Campolo was to be the lead speaker at that function. Tony Campolo has taught in secular universities for nearly 30 years. He's got four degrees. He's a sociologist. He's very articulate. And in dealing with a secular audience, in particular Jewish students, he has developed an approach that he feels is most effective in dealing with a secular mind, a mind that rejects the existence of God. And he decided to reduce his approach down to a book called A Reasonable Faith. He took some risks in the way he presented the material. And certain people who cannot stand Campolo's politics, his, the questions he's asking about Nicaragua, Central America, South Africa, and so on, because they can't stand his politics, they launched into this book and circulated among a great number of churches across the country, a letter calling Tony Campolo a heretic. One of the professors at the International School of Theology was the brother of the prime mover of this attack on Campolo, and he wrote a long analysis to Dr. Bright on the book and basically said, this is heresy, Tony Campolo is a heretic. Whereupon Bill Bright, told Jay Kessler, the president of Youth for Christ, that Tony Campolo was not to be a speaker at the Youth Congress. Jay Kessler reluctantly agreed to, in order to keep unity with Campus Crusade and Youth for Christ, to remove Tony Campolo, and the word got out across the country that Tony Campolo is a heretic. Efforts have been made to settle a thing at sort of step one, step two, unsuccessfully. And Chuck Colson had been at dinner that previous week with Bill Bright, and they had he had gotten both sides to agree to submit it to the Christian Conciliation Service of the Christian Legal Society. And Colson called up to advise and ask if we were willing, and I was willing to take it from there. He says, "I'm on my way to Europe for speaking engagements and a little vacation." And I said, well, I'm on my way to Sandy Cove for a week of camping with my family. And he says, well, Sam, this is important. This thing could, if this thing blows up, this is bad news. It's front page stuff. Take it. I'm gone. I said, well, thank you. <laughs> now, I'd never met Tony Campolo. I'd read some of his stuff, and I'd seen his picture once. This was Friday. On Sunday, two days later, we're up at Sandy Cove, Maryland, which is sort of like Forest Home, Mount Hermon. It's, it's a nice Bible conference ground back there. And we set up our gear and camping and went to the lodge and walked out on the veranda and looked out on the bay and looked over to the left. And my goodness, there looked like somebody that whose picture I'd seen. And I went out and to see who was speaking at Sandy Cove that day, and guess who was speaking at Sandy Cove that day? 
Tony Campolo. In God's universe, there are no accidents. I had gone 40 years and 11 months never having to meet Tony Campolo, but within 48 hours after there was a need to get introduced, the Lord arranged it. He brought me 150 miles north, Tony Campolo 100 miles south, and there we were. And I walked up to him and I said, Mr. Campolo or Dr. Campolo, I'm Sam Erickson of Christian Legal Society. He says, have I got to talk to you? <laughs> and then we talked about 1 Corinthians 6, Matthew 18. And to make a long story short, on October 9th, 10th, at the O'Hare Airport in Chicago, we brought together a panel consisting of J.I. Packer as chairman, the most brilliant Christian mind that I've ever encountered, a man who has 28 adjectives to choose from every single time he utters a sentence and always picks the right one in a very nice English accent. Brilliant, godly man. Earl Rodmacher, Western Baptist Conservative, Conservative Baptist Seminary, who's no slouch. Gordon MacDonald, President of InterVarsity. And James Montgomery Boyce of Philadelphia, pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church and one of the real bright young pastors in the church. That was the panel. The issue is Tony Campolo a heretic? All I did was pour coffee and water. <laughs> and by six o'clock that evening, I was exhausted. That was the most intense nine hours of interrogation that I've ever encountered. It was tough love. And at the end, when I saw that the process had worked, when it was abundantly clear that Kampala was no heretic, he had been a little careless in the way he had stated some things that needed to be clarified, but this was not, no heresy. When I saw the spirit of reconciliation taking place, the tone, the witness of the meeting, I was in tears. And then J.I. Packer did something that was almost unforgivable. He says at the end, let's pray. He says, Tony, would you close in prayer? And he says, no, that's not fair. Sam, you close in prayer. It took me about five minutes to regain my composure just to utter a prayer because what I had witnessed there was one of the most powerful examples of Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 6 in operation. In nine hours, we accomplished what would have taken lawyers in the courts five years and a half a million dollars. And we, they wouldn't even have accomplished it then because reconciliation would not have taken place. Does it work? It works. Is there a better way? Yes, there is a better way. Is the world watching? The world's watching. Are we a sign? Like we talked about this morning. In a world where everyone wants to be a wolf, we're called to be sheep. It's risky. But it's worth it. So, if he were to paint your portrait, where would he paint your hand? Stuck in your pocket saying, what's mine is mine. Stuck in another man's pocket saying, what's his is mine. Or open and extended saying, what's mine is yours. It's your choice. Don't blame it on the courts. Don't blame it on the secularists. Don't blame it on anyone else. The choice is yours. The Christian life is a choice, and it's up to us. If there's going to be any hope in this country, if we're going to reduce 33 million lawsuits a year, 16 million lawsuits a year, it's got to start in the church. And just to share what's happened just in the last week on this, and then we'll take some questions. As I shared, insurance premiums, if you're reading the papers at all, you know insurance premiums are going off the scales. I just got a bill on a property, fire insurance bill, 
I went up from $1,100 to $3,300 in one year, and I have never filed a nickel 